Jesus, we just thank you um, for this day and just thank you for for calling us into just life with you, God, that no matter how crazy and divided this world seems in our small community and in the world as a whole, God, that that we know that you're there in the secret place just waiting for us so that we never have to stay in overwhelm, God. You're just there to offer us friendship and to offer us peace, and we just thank you for that, for the hope that we have in you. I just pray over Joseph today um, and over our service at Home Church and that um, you would just speak through the message, God, and uh, and that something would, would strike our hearts so that we might go out into our community and um, and and shine shine your light in your name. We pray, Amen. Um, all right. So we have been talking over the last few weeks about what it means to <clears throat> be rather than seem, and specifically when it comes to like getting into you know what what this whole idea of commitment to christ really looks like what it really entails um <clears throat> we went through and talked a little bit about um what it means to know who god is to not just have knowledge of god but to actually understand at a deeper level like who god is and what his nature is so uh you know kind of getting into the whole um, the whole idea that you know you can you can know of the idea of somebody or know of the gist of somebody, but not really know them. Um, you know, if uh, I think one of the comments I made in one of the home church videos was that like you know, if you were to sit here and say, I don't really know my spouse all that well, I just kind of know the general idea of my spouse, then you know, eventually at some point in time that relationship's gonna 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 break apart. You're not really gonna. Um, know who they are, and you're not going to know how to relate to them or any of that kind of stuff. And uh, I kind of also threw a thing in there and said, and I, I, I say this is obvious, but if it's not obvious and you're going, well, I don't think it's obvious, that's exactly how my marriage is, then I was like, then call me and we should do some counseling because that's not great. Um, so, I mean, said, so we have to actually know who God is. And yes, you know, to an extent, that is kind of an impossible task to know the full nature of the infinite, you know, whatever about God. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't understand the things that God has presented to us. Because, you know, uh, the way I kind of look at it, uh, when, whenever I've heard people kind of throw their hands up, especially when it's almost to kind of argue uh, against spending a lot of time studying the Bible, um, you know, they'll kind of say, well, you know, it, it's futile task. You can't really understand God. And I look at it and go, well, that's true. You can't really understand him. But he did give us a lot of reading material, fortunately. So we can't totally understand him. But... You get a pretty good idea of, I guess, the stuff relevant to our lives, at least most immediately. Um, I didn't bring my Bible up here just to use it as a prop for that one thing, but it was up here, so I figured I'd use it. Um, so we have to know who God is, because otherwise we're not really committing our lives to God. We're committing our lives to some version or some image of God that we've created in our own heads. Um, and more often than not, throughout the course of our lifetimes, the God we've created in our own heads, or the image of God we've created in our own heads, uh, is going to let us down. So that's why it becomes so important to try to understand the God of the Bible, the God who has revealed himself uh, throughout time, throughout our lives, and throughout you know, all, all of Scripture, uh, so that as we see things that are confusing to our eyes, we can say, okay, I can cope with this, I can understand. I can either understand why something may be the way it is, or I can understand where there are things that I don't understand, where there is some maybe greater plan for whatever I'm going through or whatever has, uh, has happened to me. So... 
That's the first thing. You have to know who God is. And the second thing is you have to understand what it means to submit to God and the actual cost of submission to God. And we talked about sacrifice and how this is the part of the commitment to Christ that I feel like so often gets skipped over. I've attended many uh, youth conferences and youth events and everything. Um, and, and you know, over that period of time, there's a lot of things that I feel like I've, I've learned about kind of the culture that surrounds teens and how people minister to teens. Um, I also have picked up a lot of very unnecessary um, Generation Z lingo, which is why I love my praying hands with the yeet shirt on the side. It's a Gen Z-like thing. Um, so uh, also because I feel like it makes me look like I'm older than I am when I try using deliberately younger language than I should be using. Um, so when you go to these conferences, one of the things you end up seeing is that people talk a lot about who God is, and then they will talk about um, what it means to commit to Christ, which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, frequently, what they will do is they will skip over some aspects, or at least they'll address it, but maybe not entirely, because it's not enticing. It's not a good sales pitch to go into what it means to submit to God, because that is something you think about teenagers, and there it appeared in the lives where I know you have a new teenager, right? So, um, you know, they're at an age where they don't want to talk about submission, right? They're coming into their own, and they're becoming independent. So, so often, whenever uh, parents or youth leaders or other church leaders will sit here and ask the question and say, well, how come we have all these kids and they go off to these camps and, you know, there's throngs of people. I just saw a guy I follow. He's a preacher I kind of like who um, he was uh, talking about the hundred and whatever commitments that were made at, at some camp that he was uh, speaking at. Um, and, you know, people look at that and they'll say, well, then how come – Later on, things end up like those, those, so many of those kids end up kind of melting away when they get back into the real world. And it's kind of easy and convenient, especially as people who are doing a very non-traditional church kind of, kind of model. It's very easy for us to turn around and maybe blame the institutionalized church. It's very easy to say, like, well, it's the church leaders. They're not supporting them enough. Or it's the church family. It's not supporting them enough or something like that. But in reality, I firmly believe that a large cause of this is because those kids, when they make that commitment, are making it without understanding what the cost of following Christ is. And when you look at how Christ himself welcomed people to follow him, it never came along without him telling them that there was going to be a cost. That always happened. Um, and we, we, in fact, will look at an example of where you start seeing the fact that people's commitments start melting away here in just a second uh, when we start getting into the end of the book of John. So, so if you have your Bibles and you want to get ahead of me, it's going to be in John 6. Um, so, so that being said, it, it's important to talk about a commitment to Christ in context of these other two things, of knowing who Christ is and then also understanding what it means to submit to God, that level of sacrifice that is going to come along with this relationship you're going to have. There's a few different levels of commitment. I think it's what allows people to you know, make commitments to Christ or to the church or whatever um, without really fully processing what's going on. And this is something, this isn't based on any kind of, you know, this isn't based on any of the, the little, you know, church theology Bible classes that I'm taking or, or any kind of um, uh, book or anything like that. It's just based on my observation. So your mileage may vary. But... As I look at commitment, it seems like there's like four basic categories of how people commit to things. And I think if you think about things you commit to in your lives, whether those are people, organizations, jobs, whatever, I think this follows through. Um, you kind of have a recreational level of commitment. People are basically saying, I'm having fun with it, therefore I commit to it. 
this makes sense. I mean, when I think about uh, so many of the, the other community organizations I've done, uh, ironically, uh, a lot of in order to, to do this church, things that I've ended up kind of kind of uh, sacrificing off and, and kind of kind of burning off in my life, um, a lot of those things and those organizations and activities and everything were things where I did them because I enjoyed them. And I remember one guy who was a mentor in one of those groups who told me um, we were talking about some frustrations we had. Um, he said, you know, I've always told people that the second this becomes not fun is the moment I take off. You know, and he wasn't saying that because he was saying I have a weak level of commitment. He was just saying the point of this is to be fun. And if it's not fun, I'm not committed, right? And so it's a recreational level of commitment. And that's fine with a lot of things in your life. Now, when you apply that to, the, to your life with Christ, it becomes very dangerous, right? Kids go to camp. They're having fun. There's the music. There's the activities. There's the mission stuff. Mission stuff where you do it with a whole bunch of other people is super fun. Um, when it's you having to go off by yourself and go talk to somebody, that is terrifying. Josh comes up to me and talks to me all the time about like uh, him. He's working like so much with like a couple, like this one person slash family in particular in, uh, in in Richmond that he's going to like trying to get him help and all that kind of stuff just because of where he lives. And like that is way harder than going out with a group of thirty people where you have youth leader there and chaperones and you're going to on a mission trip. Not saying those other things are bad, but just saying it's a very different level of thing. So you're having fun when you're doing the camp kind of thing, and then it becomes not fun when you come back and you realize, oh, I gotta do this when it's hard. I gotta do this when it means that I maybe get made fun of, or maybe when it means I have to uh, not buy that thing I want to buy because instead I'm going to use my money on whatever this ministry thing or something like that. Um, and so a lot of people boil it down there. The example that I kind of put down, I have examples for all these, is I just said, you know, you mentioned somebody saying, I really like baseball, so I'll commit to the church softball team, uh, but service work isn't really for me. You know, you do have people who treat church this way, and sometimes you boil it down to, like, consumerism church, but I think that's maybe not giving it, giving people enough credit. You know, I, I think people are committed, but they're just committed to things that are fun, right? And a lot of people, the the – the, the bad aspect of having a weaker uh, or a generation where we have so much security and so many options and choice and all that kind of stuff is I really sincerely think, and this may sound like I'm being kind of fuddy-duddy or something, but I mean I really think that we are breeding a weak generation. And I don't mean weak generation as in like the yeet people. I mean a weak generation as in I think everyone alive today right now when you just look at their resolve towards things they truly believe in i look at things that i see you know testimonies i see of things that churches i mean even churches and american churches and uh missionaries and preachers and things like that have done in the past and i look at the current generation and go i have a hard time seeing the current generation of people alive doing these things there are individuals who i think certainly would but it, you know, I think we've grown weak. I think we've grown recreational in our level of commitment to, to God. Um, now, one level beyond that is what we're talking about with the consumerism thing, the transactional commitment. So that's the second kind. So you have a recreational commitment, transactional commitment. I can get something out of this, so uh, therefore I'm going to be committed to it. And there's all kinds of just incredibly fascinating, like, philosophical things that pop up with this that I'll try not to go down, you know, in tangents rabbit holes with. But, I mean um, – I had with uh, – when I was doing my undergrad, the only philosophy course I took because um, I had a choice between a religion class or philosophy course, and I felt I would just get uh, kind of like pissed off if I took the religion class and heard what the professor had to say. So I took a philosophy course. And as I was taking it, super interesting and actually very helpful as I got into my ministry career um, – 
because you know one of the, one of the thought exercises they did is they said, is it truly possible for a human being to not be transactional? Is that actually possible? And and he brought up you know because the whole thing was you can't appeal to religion in your arguments and. Um, and he said, even if you think about people who have religious commitments, because that's usually the example people bring up, people who have religious commitments. They said, well, typically there is a transaction. There's a transaction of uh, eternal life or favor with God or something like that. There is a transaction. So it becomes very difficult to imagine committing to anything without there being some kind of transaction. And that experience and that class has led me as I've gone on and worked with youth and worked with some adult, adults here you know, more recently and everything – to turn around and say, you know, interesting thought exercise. If Jesus Christ had come to this earth the same way he did, and he healed people, and he forgave people their sins, and he um, did all the things that we know of that Jesus Christ did, but he didn't die on the cross for your sins. He, that was the one thing he didn't do. Would you still follow him? Would you still say you love Jesus Christ? if he had not hopped up on that cross and died for your sins, and we were under the same obligations as the people who lived back then. It's something where, fortunately, we're never going to have to live under that world, but it's an interesting thought exercise. Would I still follow this Christ, who at, seems sometimes to ask so much and ask so much of a sacrifice to submit to him if he hadn't have died on that cross? Because, you know, if, 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 you, if it's nothing more than just, I do this because I want to get into heaven, well... Do you love Christ or do you love the destination he's prepared for you? It's, it's worth a thought. But people do this in their own lives, you know, with their own uh, levels of commitment to Christ. And so the church, I'm going to sit here and do this as long as I get the things out of it I, I want, right? As long as I have the, the programs at a church and as long as they're doing the trips that I want, um, as long as I'm getting all those things, I will be a part of this. And as, long, as soon as I no longer get those, then I'm not going to do it. It's kind of the, the flaw you, you, you hear when people start saying things like um, – well, I, and they'll say it in a way that's very hard to argue against. But when people say, I can't go to that church because I feel like I'm not getting fed. And if that is, as it's being stated true, that's fair. But so often when people say that, what they really mean is, is I'm not getting the things, the services, the amenities out of that church that I think I want. So I'm not getting fed, meaning I'm not getting the things that I want, and therefore I'm not committed to it. I'm not, so it's not a commitment to a family or to a cause or to a mission or an ideology. It's a commitment to the amenities and programs I can extract out of that. So you kind of have that. Now one level deeper, recreational is very weak. Transactional is, is weak, but at least there's, there's something there keeping you in it. There's also this obligatory level of commitment. It's the third level. So this is where I feel like you see a lot of people do this thing where it's like I'm doing this thing because I feel like either because of who I am or what my history is or what my family's history is or tradition or whatever, I feel like I have to do this thing. I don't really have a choice. You know, you kind of have the uh, you know 30,000 generations of a family that's always sat in the exact same pew in a church kind of example, right? And that's exactly what this is. But this goes to other things as well. You know, I'm in I'm involved in Freemasonry, right? There's people who are Freemasons because like my dad was Freemason, his dad before him, and his dad before him, and so they do it. Um, and it's funny that when issues of like uh, principle pop up, how often those will take a back seat because their commitment is actually rooted in the fact that I simply deserve to be here, you know, or I simply must be here. And so my, my existence here is a given and everything else needs to kind of bend to that. So you kind of have that right there. And again, what, where this starts 
uh, breaking down is as soon as outside forces break down that obligation or your opportunity to support the obligation, everything fails. In the wake of this pandemic, there have been studies upon studies upon studies that you know are, are, are coming out um, with as much data as they can get that basically say now that people's obligatory commitment has broken down, where they've been told by external forces, you cannot go to church, it's funny how many people aren't coming back. And so this caused me... Several months ago, uh, might even a year ago, uh, to, uh, I know I recorded a video and put on YouTube, share on social media. I basically just said, uh, your church is not coming back. And, and that, that's what I was trying to you know, emphasize is that so many people in American Christianity specifically are here because of these first three reasons. Their recreation that they can get from the church, the transactions that they can get from the church, their sense of obligation they get from the church. And as soon as outside forces came in and said, boom, we're going to close the doors – the whole thing fell apart. It brings me back to a down here song that's called called that's called Cathedral. That um, where the the main lines of this song is they talk about if they close if they locked up the doors and they 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 burned all of our Bibles if they broke if they broke busted out the stained glass windows what would we do? And it, it, you know I think what we're seeing is that there was a lot of what I would call chaff. That was an institutional part of the church that we're seeing has been burned off by this pandemic. Um, we never want to see people walk away from Christ. But if there are people who were never really committed to Christ and are simply disguised or camouflaged in with the group in a way that makes it difficult to witness to them, then maybe it's not a bad thing that a lot of the cultural Christianity is melting away, which is why I commonly say I don't necessarily mourn the death of the Christian culture and the coming of a post-Christian society because it makes it a lot easier to see who we need to be reaching out to. But this gets us to the last level of, of commitment, which I think is the affinity-driven commitment. This is the I understand who a person is. I understand what the principle is. I understand what the ideology is. And simply because of what it is, I commit to it. And when you get to that level of commitment, this is where you get to commitments that can can override logic as it seems. You know, I'm going to sit here and commit to this relationship despite, uh, you know, whatever baggage may come along with it. I'm going to uh, stick around with this uh, church despite the fact there might be easier things. I'm going to stick around with this Christ despite the fact that this world makes it oh so easy to live a different way or to be a simply a casual Christian on paper and to go on with my life feeling like I have my, my Jesus insurance policy in my pocket. That affinity-driven commitment leads you to something that is that, that wants to pursue something deeper, that leads to something that's real, that, that, that you want to apply in so many different ways in your life. Now, I said we were going to get into John 6, and that's what we're going to do. When you get into John 6, you start seeing these events that follow the feeding of the 5,000. And... I, I really like the picture that this seems to paint following the feeding of the 5,000. Because you have feeding 5,000, and we love telling our kids and everything about that, right? We love saying, like, you had the, the loaves and the fish, and they spread it around, and they had all the baskets left over, and, and it was a big miracle. But what's amazing is to look at what happened to those 5,000 people, because what you don't see in the chapters following are 5,000 more people following Christ. That's not what you see. So it begs the question, what happened to the 5,000 who just saw the providence of God act directly in front of them? How, how do they end up coping with the world around him? In that moment, there was some 
small little level of commitment they had. They were all there. They were all, you know, trying to figure out uh, where this Jesus was going to go. Bluntly, uh, food was not that readily available back then. And so he had just fed them and they're like, I want to get more food. So at least for no other reason than that, they're going to keep following him. So there's some level of commitment where they are now following Christ. Okay. And you end up seeing this in verse 22. The next day, the crowd had stayed on the other side of the sea, Sea of Galilee, which is basically a giant lake. Um, <clears throat> on the other side of the sea, saw there had been only one boat. They also saw Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but his, that his disciples had gone off. Some boats uh, from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? So what you're seeing right here, as if you recall, you got... Big thing happens, a bunch of disciples go on a boat, they go out on the sea, big storm, Jesus' does miracle, and uh, so they're, they're looking after, after all of this is occurring, and uh, they're sitting here just kind of observing, like, where's Jesus, where are the disciples, and all that. And the Sea of Galilee is something, I mean, you could see the other side of it. Like, I know, you know, my parents were there too. Like, it, it really is a giant lake, is what it is. You can see the other side from, so they're, they're looking, and they're going... Huh, okay, I see where Jesus is. Um, so they go and they try pursuing Jesus, right? So there's a level of commitment. They are following Jesus. They are now, now uh, at least in some physical manifestation, Christians in this moment. They're following Christ, right? So they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, this is in verse 26, uh, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, This is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. So what you're seeing in here, and the, the thing that I, I was highlighting in that, that passage, was that first bit that Jesus said, You're looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. They were having a good time. They, there was a very recreational level of commitment, in a sense, that they were able to, to uh, uh, re- receive something and, and fill themselves, and, and that, that's an enjoyable thing, right? So there was enjoyment there. There was a sense of pleasure and satisfaction, and so they were following. And Jesus quickly comes in and basically says, it's not about that. You're talking about this food. You can even see the, the physical, uh, the, 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 the flesh uh, deep only level of the commitment and Jesus responding to them that you're after this food that's going to go away but I'm about something else so you can see that level of commitment and you can also see the transactional starting to pop up in there but you see it even more when you keep on going in verses 30 through 36 uh, what sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you they ask where are you going to perform Our ancestors ate the manna. So you can see right there. So what are you going to do? You know, what are we going to see? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, sir, give us this bread always. Verse 35, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. 
So once again in there, you can see that these individuals, while Christ is turning around and trying to tell them about this bread of life, this spiritual bread, he wants to feed them. They're obsessed about the physical bread. They want to know what they can receive out of this. And it's even interesting to me that they acknowledge that there's a supernatural nature to it. So again, when you get into the whole like knowing Christ isn't enough, they even acknowledge they connected directly to what Moses did, making manna come from heaven. So they acknowledge that there's a divine nature of what is taking place. It's just that that's irrelevant. That's second Nate that plays second fiddle to them receiving physically what they want to receive. So there is this very transactional nature of what they're looking at there. So they talk about the fact that they're fat and happy. It's recreational. Okay. So we've, we've, you know, and Jesus kind of shattered that, that notion. And then they got into the fact of like, okay, I want to get this bread. I want the bread. Moses gave us bread. Aren't you going to give us bread? Despite the fact that Jesus is like, it's not about bread. So, uh, you know, and, and Jesus is having to say, like, it's not about the transaction of bread. It's not about you receiving something. And so then you go on, and you started to see it again right there a little bit. This idea of obligation and the thing we always talk about when we talk about the people that Jesus was contemporary with is these were Jews. These were people who understood that they were God's chosen people and that there was a covenant, and therefore there was some sense of obligation by nature of who they are, that they are the chosen people, uh, and that all these things will happen and blessings you know, to the entire world will flow through them. And so with that, we end up seeing uh, you know, them talk about Moses a little bit and their ancestry, and they continue on with that in verse 41. Therefore the Jews started grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. The bread I will give for life, uh, for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Uh, verse 53, so Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. You can see a lot of talk in there about that whole manna in the wilderness and what was taking place right there. That there is, you know, Jesus is connecting directly what he is doing and, and contrasting that with what was happening in their past. You know, this story of Exodus and everything that happened in the wilderness, which is so pivotal and foundational to who the Jews are and their relationship with Christ, uh, their relationship with God. That is something that, you know, it was important for Christ to go in there and help them to understand that due to your birthright, effectively, this is what happened in the past. This is what I'm saying, and it's a fundamentally different thing. So at this point in time, he's gone through and he's basically addressed their recreational interests in him. He's addressed their uh, uh, transactional interest in him, and he's addressed their obligatory uh, commitment to him by saying that's not what this is about. This is about me and who I am and what I have to offer, you know, at a spiritual level, something that's beyond what you're receiving here on this earthly plane. And what we end up saying is that all of these things end up just kind of, all these people end up melting away because it's not what they wanted. Their commitment was only as deep as their recreation, as the transactions, and as their obligation. And it didn't go any deeper. So this is what we end up saying. As we continue on into verse 60. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, Does this offend you? And, and I just find that fascinating. Because again, you look at 
the way the church, the way I feel like I saw, you know, with youth ministry for so long, that so much of modern ministry is set up, and it's all set up about numbers. And, you know, to the point that you see churches doing things like, uh, at, the, at the worst, they're compromising their beliefs and their theology because they say, ah, oh, this, is, this is really hard, and a lot of people have a hard time accepting this, so we'll just, you know, kind of soften our stance on a lot of things. And when you see that, I look at this and go, funny, because Jesus heard their grumblings and just went, does this offend you? And basically said, I don't care. Like, this is, this is truth. Truth is truth. And it just cuts so much against the way the church is built up today and the way so many people in their own lives with Christ want to kind of govern things. Because so many people in their own lives, you know, you can see it, will sit here when they are confronted with saying, here's an issue that Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow or Rush Limbaugh or whatever has talked about, that what ends up happening is they end up basically saying, well, what I know I believe is this thing that I heard a political guy say, and then I'll read my Bible and I'll try to find some way to backdoor my Bible into what I think I believe. And it's so, it's so opposite of exactly what you see Christ saying here and what you don't see Christ doing. What I think is so fascinating from like a, 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 a what, you know, how does the, the church, the global church respond to these people is that Jesus basically goes, truth is truth. That's it. And, and, and what ends up happening? All these flocks of people end up turning away from him. They all start melting away. And so that brings us to this, this in verse 66, what we end up saying. And love this picture. Because you end up saying, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. They're described here in the scriptures as disciples. These were committed people to Christ. And it says they turned away and they no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Right there you can see this perfect picture of why the twelve were so significant. Because their understanding of who Christ was was not simply based on what they could get out of the relationship. If anything, many of them had to leave what was a pretty, I'll say for the time, stable life. You had people who had jobs and occupations and places in their communities. You know, people who were fishermen. And very few of them were like beggars on the side of the street. I mean, a lot, most of them had, had some kind of profession, right? They're fishermen or they're physicians or they're tax collectors or something like that. So they had something that they could do. They had to uh, shoo that away. When you look at the way Christ ended up living and, and the, the times Christ would chastise them, it wasn't about recreation because it certainly didn't seem like it was fun all the time. Uh, it didn't seem like it was about transactions because they had to, in fact, give away a whole lot of stuff and, and push it to the side. And it wasn't about their sense of obligation because even in these moments where you have Christ saying it's not about the fact that you have a birthright, it's about coming to, to me and following me and through that, and only through that, receiving eternal life, and they go, yeah, got it. So I understand who you are, and I'm willing to submit my life to what it means to follow you. Therefore, I'm here. I'm in it. I'm in it because of who you are. And you can see Peter right there responding just absolutely perfectly to whom will we go. 
because nothing else is important to him. There, there's, I mean, you, you, you could almost look at Peter in that moment and go, well, what do you mean? There's hundreds of people you could go to. You could, you could go back to what you're doing. You're an educated guy. You could, you could go do anything you wanted. You could go to any one of these towns. There's tons of places that you could go. But in this moment, Peter's looking at his life and looking at what is the single most important thing in his life and saying, where else would I possibly go? And I think that's such a awesome picture of what it means to commit your life to Christ, to look at him and to basically look at all the things the world has to throw at you uh, in terms of other uh, uh, the, the popularity and the acceptance that, that they can offer you and, and what it means to treat people a certain way so you can achieve certain status or, or whatever. And to look at all of that and to shoo it off and just go, I mean, what else could I possibly want in life while you're actively pushing all those things away? Living your life in that way is the strongest testimony you could possibly make to anybody around you beyond any kind of words you can make or anything you post on social media or you know doing sermons or service work or anything. Like simply living a life where it's just so blatantly apparent that like I have absolutely everything I need. Why would I possibly want any of these other things? Then people being able to see that through the decisions you make and how you interact with people. That is such a powerful testimony because it's, it stands in contrast so much from the world around us. If I can connect this to just one thing, I would connect it to when you see the calling of Matthew. So when you see the calling of Matthew, or, or depending on which book you're in, Levi, one was Hebrew name, one was this Greek name. When you end up seeing this, you, you can see exactly this, this kind of like, I'm following Christ simply because of who he is. Um, I, I know I frequently will make comments say, like, man, this is one of my favorite parts in the Bible. And, and I think there's like little blocks that I really, really like. This is one of them. So this is one of the ones I really like. Um, and and it's, it's, it's because of what happened here, and I like the way a lot of people have in different movies and, and, and documentaries and stuff tried to, per, tried, tried to demonstrate this because it just shows the nature of Christ and how he reaches out to us and how we commit back to him so perfectly. In Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he was reclining at the table in the house, you know, so they've gone, they've gone now into a house and they're, 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 they're eating. When you're reclining, you're eating, right? Uh, many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now when he heard this, he said, it is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I deserve mercy and not sacrifice. For I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. I think the reason why I like this so much is because it demonstrates the fact that Christ expects us to commit to him without any kind of condition of fun and comfort or what we can get out of it or just nature of who we are. Because the reality is that the commitment he turned around and outstretched to us is one that came without condition. He didn't ask for anything in return, and he didn't demand anything in return to, to, as, as a prerequisite for grace. Grace is just simply freely given. You know, all of the things when it talks about, like, what does it mean to submit to Christ and sacrifice and all that, that's just kind of a side effect of what happens when you have the living different from the world. That's not something that Christ said, I demand you to make this personal sacrifice in order to follow me. He just freely offers it regardless of who you are or what your background is or what you've done or what you think you might do or anything like that. 
He just simply reaches out to us, and simply because of that, it, it only makes sense that the type of commitment that he would want back out of us, wanting a relationship with us, is one that comes also without condition. Something that if I were to say, if Jesus Christ were to somehow come back again and say, I'm going to come back again, as it says in Revelation, but I come down right now and I'm saying, as of from between here and towards the end, everything I've done on the cross is totally revoked. Would you still follow Jesus Christ? And what you're seeing in here is that Christ came for us without condition. And so he's looking at us and saying, I just want to have a relationship with you. And if I'm loving you this much, I just want you to love me back. It needs to be reciprocated. I think the reason why I like this so much is because when you get this and you pair it with the, uh, you pair it with the parable that Christ tells of uh, a tax collector and Pharisee at the temple, it, it paints such this beautiful picture of God's, God's undying grace. You know, there's, there's the parable that Jesus, and th- this is how you'll see it sometimes in pop culture, is you'll see people pair the, um, the telling of this parable with the calling of Matthew when Jesus says that there was a Pharisee and a tax collector and they went to the temple. And the Pharisee, you know, went out there with all of his phylacteries and his tassels and all this kind of stuff that demonstrated his piety and said, I thank God that I am not a sinner like these individuals. Um, Immediately after that, you know, he, he contrasts that with the, the tax collector who shows up, somebody who is the, the reprobate of society and throws himself on the ground saying, God, forgive me for I'm a sinner. And in that moment, what Jesus says is that that day, the, the tax collector was the one justified and not the Pharisee. Because the reality is he was the one who was offering unconditionally his heart without any expectation of what he's going to get back from society or the religious elite or anything like that. In that moment, he simply wanted to have a relationship with God. And that's it. That's where what he got out of it stopped. What we see in the calling of Matthew is that he obviously was blessed tremendously and he ended up, you know, also like many of the other disciples having to give his life, you know, ultimately for what he believed. But you end up seeing the heart of an individual who wants to come to Christ and is willing to come to Christ and is enabled to come to Christ regardless of anything that happened in his past. And so what this does is it beckons to us as we think about our own commitments to Jesus Christ in what are we committing to. Are we committing to a Christ that we've created in our own head that makes sense to us because he's the one that we prefer to think about? Or do we believe in the God that we see revealed to us through revelation upon revelation in the scriptures? Do we understand what it's going to mean and what it's going to take in order to follow this Christ? And then when it comes to our level of commitment, are we committing at a level that is driven by our affinity, by our love for who this Christ is and for what he did for us because he reached out to us unconditionally. And so as we sit here and we look at our own commitments, that is what we must wrestle with. And it leads us to this point of saying, it is possible for me to have had a commitment that has flagged over time. I'm not going into the theology of apostasy and all that, but just, you know, is my commitment where it needs to be? And, so often we run into these ruts in our lives where it's not. And this is when we talk about things like recommitment. Now, recommitment doesn't always mean going in and getting rebaptized and all that kind of stuff. But 
recommitment is something that I think is healthy and it's something that we should be doing because we can so quickly slip into complacency and start feeling like, you know, I'm really only super amped about this if there's something I'm getting out of it. Or I've kind of lost my motivation and my fire because it's not fun anymore. And that's something that does happen to all of us. And it's in those moments that we have to be accountable to ourselves, that we have to check our sense of commitment that we have to Jesus Christ. If you feel that your level of commitment has flagged, then I encourage you to spend some time either talking with somebody or praying or maybe maybe even making a recommitment in some way, shape, or form. I'll leave you with this little anecdote. Um, so it was interesting to me when I gave a series that was like this, and it, it went on a whole lot longer, um, to a bunch of youth. I'm talking, for the most part, to people who kind of grew up in the church. It was fascinating to me. We got to a certain point where we ended up having um, 11 people in one night that we baptized and that were, that, were, that were youth. And when we were doing that, over half of them were people who at some point in time had been baptized in their lives. So they had been baptized, and what they acknowledged is they said, here's the deal. When I sit here and I think about why I was doing this, what I was committing to, either A – it was just an act. It was something I did because I felt like that's where I was. It's like an obligation kind of thing almost. I feel like this is where I am in my relationship. I get up to this point and I do this thing and there you go. That's, um, you know, kind of way. I mean, I was, I was decent kids. I mean, I kind of took a lot out of, you know, when I went through like different classes and stuff when, when we were Lutheran. But, um, you know, that's kind of the way sometimes it felt. I can tell you right now when I got baptized initially as a Baptist, it's exactly what it was when they said basically you just can't join our church unless you get baptized. And I went, I guess I'm getting baptized. That's a heck of a commitment, right? Um, but so many of these youth hit this point where they said, this needs to be something that's more than just my identity. It needs to be something that, I think the way one of them put it, who had been baptized before, is they just said, like, before I kind of, like, I kind of knew about the whole Jesus thing, but now I understand what it means to me. And they hit that point, that little inflection point, and they said, so... I need to make a commitment that means something to me. I need to make a commitment that I feel like is real and will carry me through whatever life throws at me. And that's not what I did in the past. And so they wanted to recommit. And I had a couple people recommit, and uh, a few of them wanted to do baptism. Some of them didn't. But what was so awesome about that were people stopping and assessing where they stood with God and then saying, do I need to change my trajectory? That's what was so important. So my prayer for all of us would be that we would do exactly that, that we would assess on a regular basis our level of commitment that we have to God and assess if there's a trajectory that we need to change. And if that comes along with changing lifestyles, it comes along with changing lifestyles. If it comes along with getting out of things that you know we've been doing in the past, it comes along with getting out of things that we've done in the past. If it comes along with something like a baptism or whatever, and it comes along with baptism. Unfortunately, we have a really neat, nifty hot tub we're going to do on that. So... Um, Regardless of what it means, the outcome needs to be the same, that we are committed through our love of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us in an unconditional nature in the same way that he unconditionally reached for us. When he hopped on the cross, he didn't ask any questions of us first before he got up there. He just got up there. Let's pray. Dear God, we do pray that 
We pray that we would be self-aware enough and that we would be willing to look inside of our hearts and to assess where it is we stand with where it is we stand with you. Help us to to, to be willing to look and have honest conversations to internally with ourselves about what it is we're truly dedicated towards, what it is that um, what it is is actually driving us to to say that we are a Christian and, and to, to do the things that you're calling us to do. Um, help us to just be Christians that are real. Help us to be Christians that aren't just doing it because it's something that's yeah, fun or something that we get, you know, some kind of tangible goodness or blessing out of or something we feel like we have to do. But help us to be Christians that people can see are doing it simply because of how awesome and how amazing you are. And in doing that, I pray, God, that those other individuals who see you in our lives would be touched and would be willing to to hear about you and to hear about how much you love them unconditionally as well. In your son's precious holy name we pray. Amen.